support for the nonprofit lab comes from accountability, a requirement or expectation to ourselves and others to stay responsible for who we say we are and what we say we're going to do. Accountability. Find it within yourself as a high-functioning individual and with your teams as you pursue success. Welcome to The Nonprofit Lab, a podcast dedicated to the ongoing discovery of how we can all be a part of bigger social change through the lens of the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Puya Porak. I'm an industrial engineer, human-centered designer, and CEO of MatchNice, a social impact tech startup with a mission to connect the nonprofit ecosystem and maximize social impact. Thanks for joining us on our startup journey as we look to uncover and shake up the status quo in the world of nonprofits. My guest today is Aliza Schatzman, president and co-founder of the Legal Accountability Project, a nonprofit aimed at ensuring law clerks have positive clerkship experiences while extending support and resources to those who do not. Aliza earned her bachelor's from Williams College and her JD from Washington University School of Law. After law school, Aliza clerked in DC Superior Court during the 2019 to 2020 term. In March, 2022, Aliza submitted written testimony for a House Judiciary Subcommittee hearing about the lack of workplace protections in the federal judiciary, detailing her personal experience with gender discrimination, harassment, and retaliation by a former DC judge. All of this in order to advocate for the Judiciary Accountability Act, legislation that would extend Title VII protections to judiciary employees. Aliza now writes and speaks regularly about judicial accountability. She has been published in numerous forums, including the Harvard Journal on Legislation, UCLA Journal of Gender and Law, Yale Law and Policy Review, NYU Journal of Legislation and Public Policy, Administrative Law Review, Above the Law, Law 360, Slate, Miss Magazine, and more. This episode provides a first-person view into a roadmap of the creation for a nonprofit's mission, go-to-market strategy, sustainable fundraising approaches, and ways to overcome challenges as a leader who's first to market on a major issue. Here's my conversation with Aliza. Aliza, welcome to the Nonprofit Lab. How are you? How's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me on the show. Of course. Thanks for being on the show. I'm really excited to share your journey in the nonprofit sector, everything that you're doing with the Legal Accountability Project. I'm eager to tap into like all the different initiatives that you're working on and how that translates into your sustainable fundraising model and so many other questions. But let's start one step at a time. So tell us about yourself. What what you know, what is it that drew you into the nonprofit sector? Sure. So I am the president and founder of the Legal Accountability Project. We are a nonprofit that seeks to ensure that law clerks, so new attorneys, have a positive clerkship experience while extending support and resources to the folks who do not. I graduated from Williams College in 2013 and WashU Law in 2019. And when I graduated, I aspired to be a homicide prosecutor in the DC US Attorney's Office. So I decided to do a clerkship in DC Superior Court during the 2019 to 2020 term, intending to launch my legal career. And I really think of the nonprofit as the resource I wish existed as a WashU Law student applying for a clerkship a law clerk facing harassment and unsure where to turn for help, as we will discuss today, and then a former clerk engaging in the formal judicial complaint process. So I, you're the second guest, I think, that's turned an adversity into an initiative to kind of help other victims of um, a, you know, a specific experience that was not positive. Um, and I think that 
it's it's becoming a theme like in in the podcast a lot of people are starting nonprofits because they see an opportunity in front of them and they want to make the world a better place. Many are also starting nonprofits because they've had a personal experience with a specific issue and want to stop that from happening. So, um, and I think that is just so important that we, we need more founders and executive directors advocating based on their personal experience. It makes me particularly attuned as I am thinking through these issues and interfacing with various stakeholder groups that I'm coming at this from my personal experience. So I think it's just so important. It creates some unique challenges, personalizing my advocacy work. I take various setbacks personally, but it's really important and I think it's one reason why law clerks trust me, why law schools engage with me. So, yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And if if a founder or executive director, let's say, doesn't have that immediate personal experience, let's say you're a nonprofit um, serving under, or underserved communities that are, are in poverty, like having individuals on your board or team members who have come from that experience to create that connection to reality of that experience, I think is really important. So I'm glad you underscored that. You just said though, it's it's face, it's brought some unique challenges for you. Um, can you go into that? What, what does that mean? So yeah, I take two types of setbacks personally. The first is, and we'll talk a little bit more about what the nonprofit does, but if a law school says, I don't want to partner with you this year, or a donor says, I don't want to donate to you just yet. I had one donor in the early days say to me, why did you start a nonprofit? Why don't you work for the ACLU? The ACLU doesn't work on these issues, but I take those personally. What, what, is, take, the, what is the ACLU? The American Civil Liberties Union. Okay. Um, but what I take more personally is this. So I interface with a lot of law schools, um, advocating for them to make changes to protect the next generation of young attorneys from workplace mistreatment. And some law school administrators say things to me like, we're blessed to work with only good judges. All our alums have a positive clerkship experience. Or I don't need your project. I know about all the judges. Or my law school alma mater said this to me, it is our official policy that we do not warn students about judges who harass their clerks. Now, those types of comments are outrageous all on their own. Um, I take it personally that law students at those schools will go another year without resources that they need in order to ensure a positive clerkship experience. And I just take their um, discounting of the problem or their skepticism that there is a problem enormously personally. I'm coming to this work based on my personal experience, a story and experience that I share very publicly, very frequently. And I think it's what gets me in the door at a lot of law schools that they are willing to engage because they know that I have this personal experience. Uh, but I, I take those kinds of outrageous comments incredibly personally. And then it's always a judgment call for me as to whether I wanna share that publicly. Typically what I do is I'll talk about those kinds of comments with the student leaders at the law school or the alums as I'm engaging with them. Um, but it really troubles me that this is how a handful of law schools think about their students, think about their alumni. And if I did not have a personal experience with harassment and retaliation, I might be able to better take that in stride. Something I'm working on, but I don't think I should ever become totally separate from these issues. I think that would make make me a less effective advocate and a less effective leader. Yeah, um, I, it's 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 like a double edged sword. But the the edge that is driving the purpose and the cause forward is so sharp, and I couldn't think of a better suited leader to be going forward and raising awareness to and vying for change in this space than than you the other side of the sword like you just said is it's an incredibly personal experience and with that like you're quite literally leading with your own heart and experience and i think that's incredibly admirable and i appreciate you giving kind of that transparency to to how personal it is you know i think there's this uh like in the in the for-profit sector particularly it's there's this stat like um 
common saying, like, it's just business, it's not personal. But when we're talking about the nonprofit sector, I think maybe this is an interesting, like, difference, particularly for founders, I think it can always kind of, you can get that personal angle, but in the nonprofit sector, when you're working towards these social justice issues, or just, you know, human welfare issues that can be so personal like how can you separate the quote unquote the business of a nonprofit from like yeah. you as a human so um, and part of the business of running a nonprofit is fundraising and there i think donors are very interested in my personal experience and so it's important to share so. yeah well you know in the introduction we gave a brief overview of the legal uh, accountability project, but would you would you go into just the mission and focus a little bit and tell us about the different initiatives that uh, LAP is working on right now? So the Legal Accountability Project works on a couple major initiatives in collaboration with law schools and other stakeholders premised on this basic set of facts. But I think I should actually back up and talk a little bit about what a clerkship is because I realized that the nonprofit podcast is not a legal podcast. So a judicial clerkship is one where a new attorney, typically fresh out of law school, maybe with a year or two work experience, spends some time working for and learning from a judge. And tasks vary courthouse to courthouse, chambers to chambers, but most law clerks do research, they write orders, opinions, and bench memos, they go to court with the judge, they assist with judicial decision-making, makes it a valuable crash course in trial lawyering for the new attorneys, learning from the folks who appear before the court. It also makes them attractive to employers who want to know about judicial decision-making for the judges for before whom they appear. A judicial clerkship is considered the necessary checkbox in the legal community for your next legal job. And the messaging around clerkships on law school campuses, including at my alma mater, is uniformly positive. This is gonna be a lifelong mentor-mentee relationship. This position confers only professional benefits. Nobody before this year, before I started talking about it on all these campuses, was talking about the worst of circumstances when judges abuse their positions of power and mistreat their clerks. And they can have enormous far-reaching implications on their former clerks' lives, careers, and reputations. The judiciary, the federal judiciary, is also exempt from Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, meaning that folks who are harassed by judges cannot sue their harassers and seek damages for harms done to their lives. And the legal community has created a real culture of silence and fear around the judiciary, one of deifying judges and disbelieving law clerks. And law clerks who face mistreatment are notoriously unwilling to file complaints. They fear retaliation, they fear reputational harm, they're actively dissuaded by folks in the legal community, including their law schools. So that's basically the set of facts on the ground. And when I speak to law students, I typically encourage them to clerk. I think clerking is a great experience for many people, but it's about being intentional about who you clerk for and where you go and identifying a positive work environment. And as we're going to discuss, there really are no resources right now to do that. So the Legal Accountability Project is premised on this basic set of facts. I speak to students and I say, so you want a clerk? Great. How would you avoid judges who harass their clerks? Well, some students say, I'd ask somebody. Who are you going to ask? Law school administrators, deans, clerkship directors tell students to, quote, do their research about judges before applying. But again, what research are they going to do? when it's not like information about judges who harass their clerks is publicly available to students. A handful of law schools conduct a post-clerkship survey of their alumni. They understand that these do not capture the scope of the problem because law clerks who faced harassment are notoriously unwilling to report that back to their law schools. And the messaging on law school campuses, not only surrounding clerkships, but surrounding the post-clerkship survey is like, you had a positive experience, right? And if you had a bad one, don't tell us. And in some instances, as I've been interfacing with these schools, law schools are actively concealing information from students about judges who mistreat their clerks, dissuading law clerks who face mistreatment from writing, saying anything even lukewarm about judges. 
meaning info about judges who mistreat their clerks does not get shared from the folks who have it, law school admins, and former clerks to the folks who need it, students. So at the Legal Accountability Project, we have created a centralized clerkships reporting database, which will democratize information about judges and ensure that law students have as much info about as many judges as possible before they make what is clearly a really important decision about their careers, considering the outsized influence that a judicial clerkship and your relationship with your judge have on your future career success. We are asking law schools to send our post-clerkship survey to the past 10 to 20 years worth of law clerk alumni. They'll create an account with us and report on their clerkship. Good, bad, medium, we wanna hear everything. We ask a variety of info you'd wanna know before clerking. Law clerks can report anonymously if they choose, and we think law clerks who face harassment will report anonymously. In exchange is a subscription model, which we'll talk about. Law schools will pay us $5 per student per year based on their total JD enrollment. That is a very small sum to protect all of your students and alums against harassment. And when I was messaging this in the early days, I used to say that that is less than I spend on my Hulu account per month. And in exchange, law students get access to reading the reports, but importantly, why this is better than anything any law school can do internally. They don't just read their alumni's reports. They read the reports of all the alums at all the schools participating in the database. This is the best way on the front end to ensure positive experiences, to diversify the clerkship applicant pool, and to infuse transparency into an unnecessarily opaque process. And it is historically marginalized groups, women, minorities, LGBTQ folks, and first-gen students who decide not to clerk because they don't have the information they need before applying. They convey to me often that they would clerk if they had this information. This is going to bolster every school's clerkship program. And what I say to law schools is this. No law school has a monopoly on information about judges. Nobody knows about all the judges but every school has a ceiling on the number they can keep track of. And it totally depends who your alumni have clerked for in the past. So that is our clerkships database. This is the resource I wish existed when I was a washy law student applying for a clerkship. And uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's incredible that you've uh, built this in entire- Ending on a high note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's amazing. The uh, I, what I love about your approach, it's it's kind of a like a technology first approach to a very real human on the ground problem. That you know, as as I think about my experience at Georgia Tech, we all really relied on rate my professor to try to avoid some of those professors that were not the greatest experience. And it worked sometimes, it didn't work all the time, but like, at least we had some premise of like understanding, um, you know, what we were getting ourselves into. And like, what you're looking to do is to create that stronger sense of information and accountability as is in the name of your nonprofit for judges. What, um, you know, as, as you've been doing this, I think you've talked about the reception of this idea already. Have you, um, like, how about like the actual go to market strategy, right? Cause like what you're doing is very startup ask, like you've built this platform. You're like, you just gave an incredible pitch for the legal accountability project um you know how have you approached actually getting this out into the judiciary yeah and so i do want to go back in a second and talk a little bit more about the reception to this initiative so basically what we did we launched the nonprofit in june 2022 we decided to immediately go on a fall educational tour called the Fixing Our Clerkship System Tour. I visited more than 20 law schools in the fall for programming, talking about the scope of the problem, sharing my personal experience with harassment and retaliation, proposing solutions, including our resources, especially this database, which are going to transform the clerkship application process and the legal profession for the next generation of attorneys. Over the summer, I also interfaced, began interfacing with about 70 law schools worth of deans and clerkship directors, and it has been more since then. And I started off 
in the spring before we even launched, trying to get a sense of their resources. What resources do they have to help students identify positive experiences, avoid judges who mistreat their clerks? Law school admins were very candid with me, which I appreciated. And I do think the fact that I was coming at this based on my personal experience, I'd spoken publicly and many were aware of my congressional testimony, um, got my foot in the door at a lot of places. And then I followed up and we eventually cooked up this centralized clerkships reporting database. My initial thought and what I pitched to my law school alma mater in the spring was that every law school should have an internal database. A handful of schools, as we mentioned, already have those. Those do not address several issues. First, law schools that hoard information about judges who mistreat their clerks. Some share that with students, some very troublingly do not. That does nothing for the law students at the 100 plus other law schools who unwittingly walk into a hostile work environment because their schools are either not well resourced enough or just unwilling to do any sort of post-clerkship survey. So we wanted to do this kind of information sharing to combat problematic silo effects, to knock down that ceiling on the number of judges any one school can keep track of, and to really ensure that the information was getting from the folks who have it, from the keyboards and mouths and pens of the former clerks to the folks who need it, the students. Because what I have seen and continue to see, there are some law school admins for a variety of reasons, some well-meaning, some not so well-meaning, who are just unwilling to share the unvarnished information about negative clerkship experiences with students who seek this information. So we really wanted to take this out of law school admins' hands, democratize information about judges. Throughout the fall, we visited more than 20 law schools, and the reception was enormously positive. Law school admins, the clerkship directors, and deans of career services often attended our events and met with me afterwards, talk about the initiatives, and we made progress at so many places from going there, meeting with them. The admins saw that I'm really not antagonizing anybody. I'm not out there criticizing anybody. I'm just trying to share my experience, underscore the scope of the problem, convey that my experience, while not rare, is one that is rarely shared publicly. And now I am preparing to send out the formal vendor proposal for the database to, it looks like, more than 30 schools. Um, and, you know, I, I hope all 70 that I've been interfacing with will eventually partner with us. I hope all 100 plus will. But we're making progress nearly everywhere because we're willing to go everywhere. And I think some of the best feedback I've received is that I seem particularly open to dialogue with people who on paper I would not necessarily agree with. I'm always open to the conversation. So how we get this to market? I mean, it's a couple things. It was the fall tour. We were already interfacing with our database engineers. They built the prototype in August of 2022 before we hit the road. So we knew this was feasible and what it would look like. We're working on the final build now, which... I'm obviously fundraising for. It is expensive to build something that is secure um, and protects people's data. And obviously this is sensitive information about law clerks who face mistreatment and judges who mistreat their clerks in some instances. So we're doing that. Um, and then it looks like some other entities in the legal community are also going to send out our post-clerkship survey as I'm interfacing with these law schools. That's going to fill out the database it's going to ensure a positive user experience for the first cohort of students who use it. And I'm very hopeful that at least 10 schools will partner with us this year. We'll supplement law school's existing resources. A couple of years down the road, I hope every law school will partner with us. We will supplant schools' existing resources, and this will be the go-to resource for transparency in the clerkship application process for information about judges. That's such a clearly outlined and well thought out go to market strategy from in, like raising awareness to the issue, putting yourself and your experience in the seat of these universities and schools to have these conversations to um, be create that dialogue around the issue first and foremost and um, to, as you said earlier, kind of in your reception, and I'd love to open the floor for you to, to talk about kind of how that has been again, um, maybe in more detail, uh, is, is to hear kind of the resistance because, um, you know, what you're doing isn't this 
you know, like perhaps for students, it's universally like, yeah, this is a great idea, but <laughs> we're talking about some pretty serious power um, structures that you are also going head on against a lot of, like you said, the kind of the deification of judges. Um, these are individuals who have a lot of influence and power in many ways. So can you talk about uh, that, like in your go to market? Have, have you had to make any pivots or changes in your approach based on that reception that you're getting from the student body as well as from the powers that be? We've had to make several pivots since we launched, and I knew that. I knew that we needed the publicity from the launch to get this off the ground and that we were going to have to build a plane while flying it. I was expecting that. Um, you know, I speak with a lot of judges, state and federal, who are very receptive to this. They support this for a couple reasons. They understand positive reviews in the database will bolster not only their reputations, but will also diversify their clerkship applicant pools. They want more diverse candidates. They know those are the folks not always empowered to apply. They also know these databases already exist on a handful of law school campuses. And... They believe there are negative reports in there. They believe law school admins are warning people to avoid certain judges. I think they overestimate both of those things, but it's interesting that they point them out and that they have no problem interfacing and hiring from any law school that has that database. They're not asking to see the reports, question them. They know this exists. So judges have been very supportive, which I appreciate. Most law schools are pretty willing to engage. And, you know, I try really hard. I think about the messaging a lot for the nonprofit and the kind of sometimes competing stakeholder groups, law students and law clerks, for whom strong statements are important to underscore the scope of the problem. They know these issues are urgent, not unaddressed. They face mistreatment. They don't report it back to their law schools. They know law schools are withholding some information from them. But then there's law school admins who have been very willing to engage with me. And occasionally I got the feedback in the fall. We love what you're doing, but maybe you should criticize us less if you want to work with us from some pretty friendly law schools. And I, I took that to heart. Mm. But at the end of the day, I have compiled a lot of information about these law schools, their resources, their admins, statements to me in private conversations. I am concerned some law schools do not understand the scope of the problem. And they really are able to disclaim responsibility because their law clerk alumni are not reporting back to their law schools. They're not reporting back because when you think of your deans, your clerkship director, and the clerkship director is somebody basically whose job it is to get students clerkships. They're probably lovely people. I have no idea. They're not the first people you're going to call if you are harassed by a life tenured federal judge. And when I reached out to my law school after my negative experience, it was for assistance. They didn't do a post-clerkship survey. They didn't have a database. I was reaching out to them for some very specific assistance. If law students and alumni who have these negative experiences, either in a judicial externship, so while they're students, or as postgrads in a clerkship, if they're not reporting back and there's a real dearth of data in this space, we're not going to be able to convey the full scope of the problem to some of these law schools. And it just so troubles me. I mean, I had one clerkships director tell me, I don't believe harassment is happening during clerkships. It's just women adjusting to their first jobs. Like that stuff is outrageous. And I typically have to make a judgment call if the clerkships director is really challenging. Is it best for me to go around them to a friendly dean or a friendly admin? And I usually do. And that has mixed success, but might put me on, you know, the naughty list for a clerkships director. And ultimately I work for the students. I work for the law clerks, but it is a really challenging balance. One of the interesting pivots we had to make. So the database uses a whitelisting system, which basically means that only folks who have pre-approved accounts can write reports about their clerkships or read reports about judges in the database. What we'd hoped would happen is that law schools who have lists of their alums who've clerked 
would turn those over to us for the sole purpose of inputting that info into the database so that those 1,000 folks or whatever, when they created an account, they would either be bounced because no, they did not go to that school. They, that's not their email address. Or they could create an account. Everything is ready to go. Law schools, basically universally, were not willing to turn over those email lists. So we had to retool. And I subsequently found out from the American Bar Association that um, they solicit each year from law schools for membership purposes, a list of all their students' email addresses, and about 50% of law schools just turn that over. And that is not the accreditation arm, that is the membership arm. So there's some interesting overlap between law schools who say, we can't do this to protect our law clerks from harassment, we can do this to solicit membership via the ABA. Um, but so we decided the next best thing would be to have law schools email our post clerkship survey to their law clerk alumni. The onus is now on LAP and or the law school to verify that everybody creating an account clerked. It's an extra step that is clunky, but we won't be posting any ver unverified reports in the database. And we will only be letting students and participating law schools read the reports. So it's an extra step, but it was a necessary one. So we've retooled several times, and I always appreciate feedback from students, from law school admins, from judges. Um, yeah. Yeah, you and I love that you talked about kind of the stakeholder ecosystem of different players that are required to make this initiative, the, uh, the Legal Accountability Project, to make clerkship a safer more pleasant experience for everyone uh, possible. What outside of the kind of the actual universities and 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 like the judges, the the admins, et cetera, what other kind of support do you need in order to increase the adoption of your solution? I know we we've kind of planted a seed around fundraising and donors. Um, but how are you thinking about partnerships and other ways that, you think might be helpful to support the adoption of the Legal Accountability Project? So I am very intentional as I think about partnerships and collaborations. A lot of very entrenched law school administrators want to know who's partnering with LAP, which big names support us. And fortunately, we have some of those. And I interface with everybody. I'm always open to the dialogue. The big names in the legal community, the big institutions have historically not worked on these issues. And when I initially reach out to them via email, they'll put in writing, this organization does not work on issues related to protecting law clerks against harassment, which is pretty concerning. Um, but so I was very intentional over the initial few months as we were getting this off the ground about who I wanted to partner with and what it would say for LAP to work with organizations that have historically been part of the problem rather than part of the solution. At this point, stakeholders include various affinity groups, various bar associations, various other entities in the legal community that can send out our post-clerkship survey, which is great. They can do programming with me, which is great. Um, they can send info to their membership lists about LAP. If people would like to learn more, potentially support us, that is great. In terms of other stakeholders, it's obviously students who are very supportive. They're not going to be our big donors, but they're important. And I have been really heartened by the student advocacy on so many law school campuses around LAP. Student leaders meeting with their administrations and demanding that they participate students doing petitions and sign-on letters. It's just been really incredible. A lot of it is, a lot of my outreach is also with alumni societies to do a couple things. The first is for schools that have a legitimate concern about the price of the database, we're going to see if some alumni associations might be willing to earmark the database costs in year one. Uh, those conversations are ongoing, and I think every alumni society is different. The other thing alumni societies are doing is meeting with the administrations and saying, this is a resource I wish existed when I was a law student. Uh, we've had a lot of success there, and I enjoy interfacing with the alumni societies. But this issue affects everybody, whether you clerked for, or not, whether you're an attorney or not. 
And we need everybody in the legal community to be advocating for this issue. At this point, if you are not part of the solution, you are part of the problem. And it's really interesting that no matter who I speak to in the legal community, if they are not a law school admin, they believe that there are really misaligned incentives here, that law schools are incentivized to not share information with students. It is only some of these law school admins who push back against that. So yeah, that's kind of where we are with support in the community, with partnerships. I think about these issues a lot. I'm very intentional about it. Clearly, clearly, <laughs> super intentional. And, um, you know, as you've been describing your mission, your background, the roadblocks, the pivots, the go-to-market strategy, the stakeholder groups, how you're looking to increase adoption. I, I, I like it's it's such a valuable frame of reference and a lens for our nonprofit audience to be listening to because uh, while not there's seems like you're first to market on this issue, which is wild. I agree. And I, I think you've used, used the word outrageous a couple of times. <laughs> I agree. My um, favorite word. <laughs> we're, we're 2023. Here we are. But it, but the your approach and how you're going about this as a, you know, quote unquote, new uh, nonprofit, someone who's new to the sector um, is incredibly valuable. So switching, like pivoting the conversation a little bit to kind of the, the sector focus what are, you know, you could have, there's so many questions I want to ask. All right, let me <laughs> collect myself on this. So you could have gone the for-profit route with your business model very easily. And I could see, you know, and especially in kind of the law space, the, the enterprising nature of like all the solutions and things that are out there, like it would have been very easy for you to to move towards that for-profit model instead of the nonprofit model. Why, why did you choose the two? And can you describe kind of your, your thoughts on um, like what it's been like starting a nonprofit? Sure. So we chose the nonprofit route for a couple of reasons. The first one is that while this is our major initiative this year, this is not our only initiative. We are doing a workplace assessment of the federal and state judiciaries, a climate survey that's finally going to answer the question, how pervasive is harassment in the judiciary? We're doing educational programming. We are creating an employment attorney database to connect mistreated law clerks with attorneys who can help. Uh, we're going to do limited legislative advocacy in like compliance with 501c3 status. We hope to get into the judicial appointment space, so appointing better judges. So there's lots of other stuff we're going to do. Um, we are a revenue-raising nonprofit, which helps us be sustainable and means the database will be self-sustaining. The money we raise can go toward our other initiatives. It's also not a competitive subscription model. We would charge more. We would have to charge more of law schools or some other subscription group uh, if this were a for-profit. And we were very intentional about wanting to charge law schools. We do not want to charge individual students. And if we did, it would cost more like substantially more for individual students to subscribe. Law schools have the money and they've also, they don't love it when I say this, but I'm gonna say it anyway. They have historically been part of the problem, funneling students into clerkships they know or suspect are bad. They can now be part of the solution. They are the ideal vector for change and they should be the first to step forward and make these changes. Um, I've had a couple of moderators at our law school events when I mentioned the subscription fee and the clerkship director was in the room, the moderator would look at the clerkships director and say, you could find that money under a couch cushion. Or I tell students in advance of our events what the subscription cost is for their law school and they go, that's how much we're spending on the lunch we're bringing you to. So like people know this is not a lot of money. It's a couple of thousand dollars for law schools. Um, so that those are some of the reasons why we went the nonprofit route. Um, it means I need to raise money, uh, which is challenging. And I don't have a nonprofit background. I mean, I interned at nonprofits as an undergrad doing a little bit of basic development work, but it is really me reaching out to my alumni networks, reaching out to large dollar donors who've been high profile on similar issues and really making the pitch that this affects everybody, that this is tied to other issues in the legal community. This is a courts issue, a democracy issue, a fairness and anti-discrimination issue. And um, it's challenging, but I think I'm the right person to do it. 
I lead with my personal experience, which some people have said, maybe I shouldn't, or maybe it's too negative. And, um, those are people I, I discount that criticism <laughs> Good. Good. with my personal experience here. Uh, the founder I'm, story is critical <laughs> to the mission of the nonprofit. <laughs> yeah. I I'm in the camp of people like, yes, you go, you're doing it and you're the perfect person to be doing it. Um, <laughs> and this is not a topic or a space where, you know, like the sensitivities of potentially ruffling feathers, like your the whole mission is is like, let's shake this up. Hold on, let's take a clear look at this. So I very much admire you doing that. And it totally makes sense that you went the nonprofit route. And the fact that you did and your revenue model, the sustainability that's baked into it, it's really refreshing and exciting to see one of the, the status quo practices in the sector that, you know, we're looking to raise more awareness to, and I think nonprofits understand this, is having a sustainable fundraising model is so important, right? You don't just rely on donations from donors, but can you create programming that's also generating revenue and, and brings the return on investment, the return on impact, the kind of double ROI in the nonprofit sector to life? And the fact that you have those pillars in place is incredible. The other interesting thing that you said that that's very much a status quo practice in the sector is that like no one ever like 80% of people who end up in development fundraising roles like didn't intend to or like it's just like or have no experience in, in doing that and kind of learn by doing so, you know, the the experience that you're talking about of like reaching out to your personal contacts and that's very similar to like the uh, startup fundraising experience as well. And, you know, there's so many different resources around how to do it. And maybe we should, we should talk about like donor management systems and other things um, offline at some point as well. Cause I'd love to support the legal accountability projects, fundraising strategy. And I know we've got some time to talk about how to, you know, you have the bones, like you've got all of it, right? You've got like the initiatives, you, you know exactly what you need to succeed. You've got like your constituent groups, you've got the facts and figures to translate what a donor's dollars mean means in terms of impact towards this cause. So there's not really much fuzzy about what you're doing. And uh, you're clearly an excellent communicator. So I have no doubt that you're going to just crush it with this. And uh I'm glad that this podcast can help raise awareness to the issue, but I know that this is very much just in the beginning of your journeys. So um, as we look to, you know, wrap some of the conversation, I just have a few more questions for you on this topic of fundraising. How are you thinking about personalizing your overall fundraising approach? So that's a good question. Um, I think it's two things. It is reaching out to donors who can empathize. So that is probably women of an older generation who had an experience like mine. So that's being very intentional. I am very active on social media and it is seeing who's liking and resharing my stuff and then figuring out why and having those conversations and seeing who else they can connect me to. So that is one aspect. The other is definitely this alumni piece of it alumni societies and also individual alums who can initially reach out to the law school and say, this is a resource I wish existed when I was a student, but can also go much further and say, I'm going to earmark a donation for this database for that reason. I know that having the database up and running and announcing our law school partners is going to unlock further fundraising. So a wealthy alum can say, I love my law school. I love their partnering with LAP. Let me make a donation. The chicken and egg problem because law school potential partners want to know who else is participating, who else is on board, and we are not ready to make those announcements yet. So it makes it challenging. Um, I am fundraising right now for a good idea, a great idea, I would argue. Um, but we're definitely facing that first mover problem with some of these law schools. Well, it's, you know, one of the things that I've learned in the startup world is that 
the first mover piece is like one of the most piece, like secret ingredients to success. And the fact that you are on the forefront of this in such a obvious issue, like obvious issue to tackle um, makes, makes a lot of sense. So um, I, I, I love your personalization approach. And I think that it's something that every nonprofit has to think about is like, who are the individuals that can empathize with this the most from their personal experience and like how do you look at the entire world of potential donors and then segment down to those individuals that um care and that want to be part of the solution and like you said um in some cases maybe that's not opening a checkbook but it's an introduction to someone else so you know that's come up in on this podcast um before is kind of like not looking at your donors as just walking checkbooks but like every person every human um that actually cares like it, maybe like the dollars aren't always the most impactful way that they can contribute like it could be time it could be those connections it could be so many other things so i love that you're taking this well-rounded approach and I really think of interfacing with the law schools as part of the fundraising strategy, certainly part of the funding strategy. Getting law schools on board obviously unlocks money. It'll unlock further fundraising. And so being able to have, I have a, I spent a lot of time interfacing with individual alums to talk about their alma maters. I love those conversations. Sometimes I have to be the one to tell them, yeah, your clerkships director told me, um, we're blessed to only work with good judges. Everybody has a positive experience. They're sad, but not surprised about that. But sometimes I can say, I love your deans. We're working super productively and they are excited about that too. Um, but I definitely think of all the interfacing I do with the law schools as part of the larger funding strategy. And, you know, I, I work really hard on those relationships and building relationships of mutual respect and trust and nurturing them. And if somebody says this is confidential, this is off the record. If somebody says not this year, but circle back, I respect and take those things in good faith. And that's important. You know, I think of no's as not yet, um, not nevers. And I'm really intentional about that and really careful. And I appreciate that they appreciate that as well about me that they can trust me and i think that's so important thinking about the long-term success of the nonprofit there are definitely days when i want to go out there and make a really strong statement about a really frustrating law school and then it's like that might alienate the like 55 i'm interfacing productively with so maybe don't do that so it's really being intentional about that and not making it too personal even though there are days when i might want to <laughs> yeah so wise, uh, turning nose to not right now and the focus on relationships, absolutely fundamental to fundraising, whether it's nonprofit or, or really startup or any for-profit sector as well. What are, I've just got two more questions. What are the greatest lessons that you've learned along your nonprofit journey with the Legal Accountability Project so far? You know, the founder story is so critical to the success of the nonprofit. And this is challenging because I know that in terms of the long-term success advocating to prevent harassment in the judiciary, it's about encouraging other people to share their stories. It's about empowering students to demand safer workplaces, inspiring former clerks to speak out. They're really a dearth of former clerks willing to speak publicly and I am one of the only ones. So I think that's important, but it is really, I've learned that it's about larger cultural change, shaping the conversation, really changing the conversation in the legal community. I've also learned what has made LAP successful thus far is our willingness to really go everywhere and engage with everyone. And I think that is so important. When I think of other attempts to make change in this space in the past and why those have not been fully successful, I think that is why. I think they were not willing to go to all corners of the legal community to interface with judiciary leadership, to interface with people with opposite political beliefs. I am, and I think that's what's going to make us successful. And, you know, I've just learned that there are a lot, a lot of people willing to pitch in and help. And it's about being nonprofit minded, 
startup minded. My first question when we need something is who can do this pro bono now? And then I will help the next generation of folks or help them later. Um, it's really about building this from the ground up and that's going to require help. Yes, yes, yes. Aliza, one last question for you. What do you want your lasting legacy to be? I faced harassment and retaliation as a current and former clerk. It really changed the course of my legal career and my life. I don't want my negative clerkship experience to be anyone else's clerkship experience. So while this year we're going to supplement law school's existing resources, I want my legacy to be supplanting law school's resources. We have already changed the conversation on law school campuses. Some of my favorite feedback is from deans who say that I've changed the conversation on their campus. I've altered the programming and messaging around clerkships on their campus. But it is about that larger cultural change. When I was a law clerk facing harassment, I didn't know where to go for help. I was told the right professional decision would have been not to report and to stay silent. And we are just combating that. We are throwing that model out entirely. And we are creating a culture of honest dialogue and reporting. Well, just like on your website, legalaccountabilityproject.org, you say a better judiciary makes a better society and that you're improving the courts one clerkship at a time. So, Eliza, thank you for everything that you're doing. Thanks for sharing your story, for taking your adversity and turning it into this beautiful initiative for change. I know it's not an easy path to take, but I think uh, many of our listeners will uh, resonate with the story that you shared. And there are so many parallels to the approach that you've taken in taking your personal experience and starting a nonprofit organization and how you've thought about your go-to-market, raising awareness and building adoption and fundraising and everything that can be incredibly valuable to our, our listeners. So I really appreciate you taking the time to share your passion and your the work that you're doing with uh, with me and the nonprofit lab. Thank you. All right, Eliza, we'll talk later. That wraps up episode 14. For our listeners, I hope you found some valuable content here, relatable moments of overcoming in your own nonprofit journey. Through Eliza's incredible efforts and initiatives, we are so grateful for the Legal Accountability Project and everything that she is doing and the way that Eliza demonstrates and shares her own story to turn adversity into positive change that can ripple through the world. Eliza, shout out to you again. Thank you so much for being a shining example of all of that and more. Today's quote comes from the late, great Kobe Bryant, who said, if you're going to be a leader, you're not going to please everybody. You have to hold people accountable, even if you have that moment of being uncomfortable. With that, thanks for tuning in. We would appreciate if you like, subscribe, rate, and share the Nonprofit Lab this episode and others with folks that might be interested. It really helps us out and we're really appreciative of our audience. Until next time, be well.